This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. The celebration of Easter ends up in heaven, but begins in hell. Perhaps you're familiar with the ancient homily for Holy Saturday in the Office of Readings on that day about the Lord's descent into the underworld to bring up Adam and Eve out of the darkness of death. God has died in the flesh, the homilist tells us, and hell trembles with fear. In English, this mystery is sometimes called the harrowing of hell. It's a term I like um, as someone who lives on a small farm Uh, Because harrowing is how you prepare the soil for spring. It makes me think of Christ uh, plowing up the depths of the grave and bringing out new life. Originally, though, the term comes from the word harrying, which means something like making a military raid on hell, like a harrier jet uh, flying in and taking back the souls that it held in bondage. So in this homily, Christ is not the suffering victim who dies on the cross, but the glorious victor over death who lifts up his cross as a mighty weapon to smash open the doors of hell. He commands Adam to come out of bondage. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be held a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead for I am the life of the dead. Rise up, work of my hands, you who were created in my image. Rise, let us leave this place, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. That last sentence always strikes me. Rise, for you are in me and I am in you. Together we form only one person and we cannot be separated. Nothing, not even the bonds of death, can separate us from the love of Christ if we've been made one person with him. So Dr. Gondreau anticipated this uh, nicely for me. Those who belong to Christ are one mystic person with him in his suffering, but also in his glory. So I'm going to come back to this um, in a a moment. But first, I want to talk about this um, 16th century Russian icon, of uh, Christ's descent into hell. So in Eastern Christianity, this icon is just called the resurrection. And I like this particular version because Christ is really hauling Adam and Eve up by the wrists. Uh, They're not going to get away again. He's, He's breaking and trampling down the gates of hell. All the other ancient patriarchs and just souls who've looked forward to his coming are also waiting to be freed from death. On the left is always King David and Solomon and John the Baptist. And on the right, there's many others, maybe um, including Isaiah holding a scroll and Abel, the first human being ever to die. At the bottom of the icon, you can see that figure being chained up in the darkness. It's death or Satan. It could be a reference to Hebrews 2.14. By his death, Christ broke the power of death. So this is not the hell of the damned, but something more like ancient ideas of the abode of the dead, 
simply the state in which souls exist separated from their bodies by death. Christ's death opened the gates of heaven to all those righteous souls who had waited for his coming. Thomas Aquinas follows patristic tradition when he teaches that the holy patriarchs were justified by their faith and devotion even before the incarnation in implicit anticipation of Christ's coming. But even though the ancient fathers could be freed from their individual sins by their faith and charity, by what is traditionally called a baptism of desire, it was not until Christ had actually undergone his passion that the human race could be set free from the punishment due to original sin so that souls could then enter into eternal beatitude in heaven. In other words, no one can enter into heaven except through um, the blood of Christ. And it was only through Christ's resurrection that anyone would be able to rise again in soul and body to eternal life. So Christ's resurrection, Aquinas teaches, is the cause of our own. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, he writes about John 11:25, where Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Aquinas says that this statement is a causal one. Christ is, he says, the total cause of our resurrection in both body and soul. And he adds that Christ is the resurrection because he is life itself. He says, one is restored to life by life, just as something that has been extinguished is set on fire again by fire. In the letter to the first, Corinthian, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul calls Christ the first fruits of those who are raised. So the rest of us are not just raised in the resurrection, we're raised up with Christ and in Christ by being united with him in a resurrection like his. So the, the general principle here is that God causes his divine effects in us through the power of the mysteries of Christ's own life, through his sacred humanity working as the instrument of his divinity to extend his life to us. So after Christ's resurrection, everyone who shares his human nature, even the wicked, will be raised bodily at the end of time. Then every eye will see him in his own risen body when we stand before him in the last judgment. But only the good who have been made one person with him in spirit and conformed to him by faith and charity will see him in both his humanity and his divinity and will rise up to eternal glory in body and soul. Christ will raise up to heaven with him all who have been united to him, even in anticipation, as members of his mystical body, the church. Christ is life itself and gives life to those who are made one with him. So to be raised up in glory in the next life, you have to be made one with Christ by grace in this life, so that all the power of his passion and resurrection can be applied not just to the human race in general, but in particular, to you. So how does that happen? For the holy patriarchs, it was through Christ's descent into hell. After his resurrection, it happens for us through the sacraments. 
So in the liturgy and through the sacraments, Christ now descends to us and opens up the gates of heaven. So the liturgy itself gives an insight into this, I think. There's a traditional theological uh, principle that the law of prayer is the law of faith. Uh, in Latin, it's lexorandi lex prudendi. So that means that the words and actions of the liturgy embody and teach the truths of the faith. So liturgy, in other words, really is the primary form of theology. It's the context in which many theological truths that the church believes were first expressed. So David Fagerberg, who used to be a professor of mine, um, used to say that liturgy is the faith of the church in motion. So I want to spend a few minutes looking at what the Triduum Liturgy itself tells us about union and resurrection with Christ, and then relate that to Aquinas' teaching on how we become one with Christ. In fact, how we become Christ-like and even God-like or deified through the grace of the sacraments. Maybe you've noticed that Holy Saturday is a weird day, liturgically speaking. There's no mass, the tabernacle's empty, and it can seem like the longest day of the year, so silent, just a day of waiting. And that's what it's supposed to feel like while Christ is in the tomb. But the church still prays together in the liturgy of the hours. I started with that homily from the Office of Readings. At Vespers, after the, the Psalms move from lament to praise, the closing prayer makes the connection between the dead patriarchs raised by Christ's descent into hell and the baptized who will soon be raised up out of the font to be made one with Christ. So here's the, here's the closing prayer. All-powerful and ever-living God, your only Son went down among the dead and rose again in glory. In your goodness, raise up your faithful people buried with him in baptism to be one with him in the eternal life of heaven where he lives and reigns with you, etc. So this prayer, of course, anticipates Romans 6, 3 to 11 on our death to sin, and resurrection to life in baptism, which is always the first reading from the New Testament at the Easter Vigil, when all the lights come on and the bells start ringing and they sing the Gloria, um, after the church's long meditation in the dark on the mysteries of salvation history leading up to Christ's redemption. I'll never forget the first Easter Vigil um, I ever attended. Uh, soon after, I, I returned to the church in my late 20s uh, at a Dominican church in New Haven, St. Mary's, um, and um, what really struck me at that vigil was that moment when the Paschal candle appeared as the only point of light in this giant dark church. And then that light spread throughout the church like a wave. It really struck me that the light of Christ can conquer any darkness. So that ritual that begins the vigil is called the Lutronarium. It's when the priest first lights the Easter fire and prepares the Paschal candle. And he prays this uh, beautiful blessing. O oh God, who through your Son bestowed upon the faithful the fire of your glory, sanctify this new fire, we pray, and grant that by these Paschal celebrations we may be so inflamed with heavenly desires that with minds made pure, we may attain festivities of unending splendor. Really, sometime I encourage you, just go and, you know, pray with the, the words of the Mass. Pray, pray with the words of the rite. Um, it's great for Lectio Divina. So the priest cuts 
or traces across on the candle, uh, marking it with an alpha and omega and the numerals of the current year to signify Christ's eternal reign. Then he inserts five grains of incense that symbolize Christ's holy and glorious wounds, his, his beauty marks, right? Uh, then he lights the candle and he prays, may the light of Christ rising in glory dispel the darkness of our hearts and minds. So this Paschal candle that symbolizes Christ is going to burn not only through the vigil and the whole Easter season, but also at every baptism and funeral um, throughout the whole liturgical year. So its light really punctuates the beginning and the end of our spiritual life um, on earth. And sometimes I think of that um, when I'm at a funeral and I see the Paschal candle like burning at the end of the casket. It reminds me of like a, a beacon on the prow of a ship going out into the darkness and sort of leading us into the darkness of death. So the deacon sings in the exalted, be glad, let earth be glad, knowing an end to gloom and darkness. The liturgy couldn't proclaim more clearly that we anticipate in faith the light of glory in the midst of all of our present darkness. So of course, this is why the Easter vigil is the most appropriate time to celebrate Christian initiation, beginning with the rite of baptism. Our resurrection to glory in body and soul begins in baptism, um, the first of the sacraments, which Aquinas teaches all the power of Christ's passion is united to us. Um, we, I, I'm sure um, Dr. Gondreau was talking about this, I think. No human being could offer sufficient satisfaction or compensation for the sins of the human race, but Christ's passion not only had the power to superabundantly satisfy for all human sins, through all time, uh, removing the guilt and paying the debt of punishment, but also meriting the gifts of grace and glory for us. But Aquinas says these gifts can be received only by those who are made one with the crucified Christ, incorporated into him by the sacraments and united with him by faith and charity. So in baptism, the Holy Spirit sacramentally likens us to Christ in his passion, so powerfully that in effect, his passion takes place in us. Aquinas says, the passion of Christ is communicated to every baptized person so that he is healed just as if he himself had suffered and died, so as to offer sufficient satisfaction for all his sins. In baptism, Christ offers satisfaction for us in us when we're made members of his body. The baptismal character that we receive indelibly configures us to Christ specifically by giving us a participation in his own priesthood. That's what makes us members of the common priesthood of the baptized. Now, you know, we hear that term a lot, um, but what does it mean really? The baptismal character is a kind of seal in our soul, right, that marks us out, and Aquinas says it deputes us once for all to the worship of God in the Christian religion. He means that it gives us the power to receive the divine gifts bestowed in the sacraments. And it constitutes us as a people who are ordained to the work of divine worship, not only in this life, but in the eternal liturgy of heaven. So in a fundamental way, our identity is changed. Now the whole purpose of our life before all else, everything that has to change everything else we do, 
is to worship and give honor to God through the Christian liturgy. Um, in fact, to exercise in the highest way the virtue of religion in its external acts of prayer and sacrifice, and especially in its internal act of devotion. And this makes us participate in Christ's priesthood because this power comes from him who is himself the perfect model of the virtue of religion. So through him and with him and in him as his members, we offer prayer and sacrifice in the liturgy um, to God the Father. So baptism gives us two things. It gives us two gifts, the gift of character and also um, the gift of baptismal grace. While the baptismal character gives us the job, so to speak, of carrying out the acts of Christian worship, the gift of baptismal grace heals us from sin and elevates us by giving us the supernatural ability to actually worship in a way that brings us to salvation. So character permanently configures us to Christ as people ordained to worship, but grace conforms us to him as well, Aquinas says, as those who worship in spirit and in truth. So baptism is the beginning of our preparation for eternal life because it's then that the Holy Spirit pours into us this gift of sanctifying grace, which Aquinas says is nothing other than a participation in the divine nature. What he means is that grace transforms our nature at the roots ontologically. It makes us more like God. It actually deifies us. So I want to say a little bit about deification now. It's a radical claim, but it's one that Christians have made from the beginning. It's a teaching that I think nowadays has to be clearly understood to avoid error. Um, because um, it's important to distinguish it from a kind of Gnosticism that would uh, imagine that we actually are God or become God somehow, um, and to distinguish it from a, a New Age pantheism, right, that says, well, everything's God already in the first place. There are many ways of understanding deification, and it's most commonly associated with the Eastern tradition. In Greek, it's called theosis. So in, in the sixth century, Dionysius gave it the first formal definition. Theosis is the attaining of God-likeness and union with him as far as possible. But the idea of deification is found in the teaching of many Western patristic and medieval theologians, including um, Augustine and Aquinas. The Christian doctrine of deification has scriptural roots. Like many other theologians who write about deification, Aquinas draws from the second letter of Peter, 2 Peter 1, uh, 3 to 4, which teaches, Christ has bestowed on us the precious and very great promises, so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature, after escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Another foundational Bible text is a beautiful one, from the first letter of John, which is now read on the Feast of All Saints at Mass. See what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called the children of God. Yet so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. 
This text describes the complete deification, or what Aquinas calls the deformity, of the saints in glory who see God face to face. But he teaches this deification begins already in this life with the gift of grace. So how exactly does grace deify us? Aquinas teaches that grace progressively perfects the image of God in our soul, giving us a share in the life of the Blessed Trinity itself. By our rational nature, we're already made to the image of God with the potential to know and love God with our intellect and will. But by grace, this image begins to be perfected in us. In the gift of grace, we receive what are called the divine missions, right? Mission means sending. So the Father sends his Son, the Word, into our minds to illuminate our intellect with the gift of wisdom. And he sends his love, the Holy Spirit, to inflame our wills with charity. Now, these missions not only send the divine persons to dwell in us, they actually assimilate or liken our intellect and will to the divine persons so that our intellect becomes more like the word and our will becomes more like the Holy Spirit. So even in this life, we actually begin to be made more godlike or deified by being made more like the Son and the Holy Spirit in our intellect and will. And therefore, we're able not only to know and love God potentially, but actually, though not as perfectly as we will in heaven. So this means that in our own minds and hearts, God mysteriously begins to live his own life of divine knowledge and love in us. So that as Thomas says, God dwells in us as the known in the knower and the beloved in the lover. When the priest um, blesses the baptismal font, he lowers the paschal candle down into it and asks the Father to send the Holy Spirit down through the Son, down into the waters. So by being buried and raised with Christ in baptism, we're also plunged into the Trinity so that all three divine persons begin to dwell in us as in a temple and to live this divine communion in us. So this ontological um, transformation um, given us through Christ um, brings about a change in our relationship also with God to be more like Christ's relationship with the Father. Because we're one with Christ in baptism, we also begin to share in his relationship of sonship with the Father. So baptism makes us into the adopted sons and daughters of God, as Paul says in Romans 8. Um, we're children of God, led by the Holy Spirit, and able to call God Father. So grace not only assimilates us to God, but it also sort of dynamically moves us along the path to heaven um, by the Spirit leading us, right? the Spirit's prompting. So we progress on this journey by actively growing in the theological virtues in cooperation with the Spirit. Um, and along the way, of course, there's many ways to grow um, in grace, but the primary way is to deepen that gift of grace and therefore of deification and sonship by, um, by receiving, uh, continuing to receive the sacraments. So I want to finish my talk by focusing on uh, the idea, especially, that we're deified through the Eucharist uh, more and more as we journey on towards this goal of eternal life and resurrection. The idea that we're, we're deified through the Eucharist is embedded in the liturgy itself. Um, for instance, in the, the opening prayer for Mass on Christmas Day, um, it, the priest prays, 
O God, who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant, we pray, that we may share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The possibility of our deification, right, comes about through the incarnation. It's handed on to us through the sacraments. So this idea of the marvelous exchange, um, that God became man so that man could become God, uh, is actually woven into every Mass, as you may, you may know. It's not always said aloud, but when the priest mixes the water and wine to prepare the Eucharistic chalice, he says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So the Easter Vigil and, and every Mass culminates for all the baptized with their reception of this deifying sacrament. So I'm, I'm going to turn now to the, the second icon, um, which you've probably seen before. Um, this is an icon of the Trinity, painted in the 15th century by a Russian Orthodox monk, Andrei Rublev. So Rublev based this icon um, on the Old Testament story in Genesis of the three men who appeared to Abraham at the Oak of Mamre. So Abraham welcomes them generously, giving them food and drink, and in return they promise that his childless wife, Sarah, will bear a son. They're really angels, right, bringing a message from the Lord. So this is a story about hospitality, Abraham's hospitality to the angels and God's hospitality to Abraham, and by extension also to us. Um, so the invisible God, of course, can't be pictured in an image, but the three messengers of God in this story have traditionally been interpreted as um, symbolizing the Trinity. So Rudolph's angels um, represent the, the Trinity, um, the Father um, on the left, the Son in the middle, and the Holy Spirit on the right. Um, and there are these three angels seated around a table. So they're sharing this one feast, right? One sort of eternal communion of, of love. And icon, of course, is much more than a picture. Um, it's really sacramental, right? Giving a glimpse through created matter of, of eternal uh, realities. It's like a window into heaven, right? So this icon is like a window which gives us a glimpse into God's own sort of blessed interior life. The icon's full of light and, and joyful colors, um, blue to, for heaven, green um, to symbolize life, and lots of gold uh, for glory. The persons are sitting peacefully here, but they're not static, right? There's a kind of movement around the table, um, kind of like a dance, uh, sometimes called perichoresis. The three persons uh, point to each other, and they turn towards each other. So none of them is focused on themselves, but they're all directed towards the others. So their communion is a kind of unity at the same time, but there are differences between them as well. Um, they're distinct persons. So the Son and the Spirit are looking to the Father here, who's sending them into the world um, to, to kind of involve the world in the inner divine life. Um, the Son is clothed in red um, to signify the passion. And behind him there's this tree that has been understood as representing the cross or the tree of life. So with his right hand, he's blessing that cup there on the table and also pointing to the spirit who's clothed in that sort of green of new life. So this circle of persons, notice how it opens out towards us in the center. Um, and we kind of move into the middle of it um, through the table and the cup. So the cup is really the center of this um, icon here. 
And it contains this, the lamb, the, the Christ in his body and blood given for us to eat. So it's the Eucharist, of course, and that's our entry point into the very center of this um, communion. So this icon is telling us something about the blessed life of God, who's three in one, right? This life that we're called to share. It's this communion of persons. It's this circular movement of love. And the way in for us is through Christ in his word and sacraments. So in the Eucharist, you could say Christ especially shows us divine hospitality, right? Feeding us with his, with his own self. And so you, Aquinas calls the Eucharist a sacrament of charity. He wasn't original. Augustine did that too. But um, it's because it contains Christ himself, right? Giving himself um, in, in the sacrament. Um, it's really the culmination of his whole self-gift in in, from the beginning of the incarnation. So Aquinas, drawing from the Christian tradition, compares the Eucharist to the burning coal that was seen by the prophet Isaiah in a vision of the temple. In this vision, Isaiah sees an angel, one of the fiery seraphim, fly up to him, holding a burning ember that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The angel puts it on Isaiah's lips to purify him so he can speak God's words. In the patristic tradition, this burning ember was associated with the Eucharist. Just as wood is united with fire in the burning coal, the bread of the Eucharist that we receive from the altar is united to the fire of divinity. So Aquinas uses this image as he explains that the body of the word made flesh in the Eucharist communicates grace and charity to us that makes us godlike. Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is like a deifying fire that elicits a response of charity from us as we receive it. So he quotes John Damascene. Damascene says, the fire of that desire which is in us being taken up from this coal, that is from the fiery enkindling of this sacrament, will burn up our sins and illuminate our hearts that by participation of the divine fire, we may be kindled into fire and deified. So the Eucharist, because it truly contains not only the gift of grace, but the giver himself, is the sign or sacrament of Christ's charity and the sign and cause of our charity and in a special way prepares us for the resurrected life of heaven. Aquinas, uh, so we've been reading these beautiful readings from John 6 recently, right? Bread of Life Discourse. So commenting on, on John 6.55, Aquinas explains that when Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, he means that the Eucharist is a food capable of making man divine, and inebriating him with divinity. Jesus adds, and I will raise him up to eternal life because in this sacrament, he's present not only in his divinity, but also in the reality of his flesh. And so he causes our resurrection, not only in our soul, but in our body as well. Um, so Jesus goes on to say, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me um, and I in him. Uh, Aquinas explains that that's because um, to, uh, to abide in God um, uh, is to abide in love, right? He quotes um, 1 John um, 4, 16 um, as members of his mystical body. 
So Jesus promises, um, he who eats me will live because of me. So to eat Christ's body in the Eucharist deifies us and prepares us for the resurrection in glory. Um, so the church's celebration of Easter begins in hell, but ends up um, eternally will be more and more fulfilled in the worship of heaven. So I'm going to give the last word to that, to the end of that ancient homily um, for Holy Saturday. Rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise. I will not restore you to that paradise, but I will enthrone you in heaven. I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life, but see, I who am life itself am now one with you. I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you as God. The throne formed by cherubim awaits you, its bearers swift and eager. The bridal chamber is adorned, the banquet is ready, the eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. Thank you. that maybe you might know more about it than I do but but I was going to say that like um try to connect to what you're just saying that after death um you know are because um uh, we're not we're not capable of sort of uh, sorry my mouth <laughs> we're not we're not capable of kind of making um new changes in our will um so um it's true that you could say there's certain passivity there I guess yeah. but um yeah, I mean, I, I like it because there's, uh, in some icons, it's interesting, I don't know why, but he's only pulling Adam up, and Eve is sort of kneeling there and praying, I guess, or waiting perhaps for her turn. Um, but uh, here he's sort of like, come on, you two. <laughs> this is it. You're not going back again. Um, and are these people the angels? The other, the other people? Down here? Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know, these, these dark, maybe these are fallen angels, these dark angels. I guess I should have found out more about the history of this particular icon. Um, sometimes you see like a bunch of um, uh, keys down here. That So it's like the, the, the Christ has sort of broken the gates of hell, and um, sometimes you see bones and things. So there's different variations um, of, this, of this icon. Um, and in the in the West, there's kind of a different tradition of the harem of hell icon, um, where it's more like um, uh, you see like enemies coming out of this giant monster mouth, like with teeth and everything like that, a hell mouth, and and he's sort of there with this big banner with the cross on it, and he's sort of leading them out like victoriously. 
so yeah, there's there's a lot of different um, different variations of this, but um, I thought this one was, was particularly good. Yeah. So I know with the, the area of health in the Byzantine Church, there actually is a problem past with the area of health. Um, the area of holy Saturday. But is there anything, is there any sort of illusion to that in the Western liturgy and the liturgy of the hour of the Well, I, you know, I, as far as in the, in the modern, um, I, I was thinking about that same question. And all I could really find, the connection I could really find was, was just that prayer, really. That idea that that closing prayer that connects the descent into hell with uh, and raising up the, the dead out of hell with the raising up of the baptism out of the time. So, I mean, that was, that was, you know, what I could find. But there's not, I mean, as far as I know, historically, there wasn't uh, a real special liturgy like there is in the East on Holy Saturday in the West. As far as I'm, maybe Father, do you know more about that than I do? No. 